noticed, but there are bride and groom donuts outside. And that is because yesterday, and I think we have a picture if we can pop it up. Yesterday, Jim and Sharon tied the knot on the 29th of February so that they only have an anniversary every four years. <laughs> so, so take a moment, congratulate Jim and Sharon, greet each other. Um, and if we have that, there we go. There's a picture from yesterday. And uh, greet each other, congratulate the bride and groom, and then we'll get started. Children, once all the hugging gets wrapped up, children can go with Miss Holly once she heads that direction. Oh, they're not up there? I think you're Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Real, uh, as we get started, I just want to um, pray for Jim and Sharon. Um, Father, your word says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And Lord, we know that Jim has found a very good thing in Sharon, and he has received your favor. Lord, I thank you that in the last year, uh, we've seen them baptized, uh, we've seen them married, uh, that they're part of our church family. Lord, we pray that you'll bless them in every way, that you'll bless them going in and bless them going out, that you'll bless their work and that you'll bless their home. Lord, I pray that you'll bless their children, that their, their kids will love you and honor you, that your spirit will live within them, that they will take the gospel forward to their children. Lord, we thank you for the grandkids that they have. We ask that you, they will be a blessing to their grandchildren. Lord, thank you so much for bringing them to be part of our body. We pray your, your blessing uh, on their lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been going through the book of James. And um, uh, for, for me, uh, going through the book of James has been a little bit like getting punched in the face every single week, right? Um, it's, uh, it's like, wow, this, this is very practical. Um, how many of you... As you were growing up, you had a conversation with your parents uh, about how much you made, or how much your parents made, or whether you were rich. Like any of you, I I remember having a, a conversation with my dad because when I was in middle school, my dad went to interview with a guy who his daughter went to school with me, and she was two grades ahead of me, and she worked in uh, her dad's office, and so she saw my dad's resume and saw what it was that he made, which she thought was astronomical because it was $25,000 <laughs> um, in 1984. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and she was like, wow, you guys are really well off. And I went and talked to my dad, and I said, dad, are we rich? And he goes, oh, no, we're not rich. The guy I interviewed with, now that guy's rich, right? Everybody always looks at somebody else and goes, I'm not rich, they're rich, right? Um, so as we get into James chapter 5 this morning, this is going to be great because it's written to rich people. And since none of us are rich, then it doesn't apply to any of us, right? All right, that's kind of how this works. So James, uh, uh, we've been talking through how faith changes everything. 
And faith should be something that's transforming every part of our life. And, and in James chapter 4, he, he is making this statement. He says, come now, this is in verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow will go in such a place and spend there and, and will trade and make a profit, yet you don't know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him is sin. And so James is going to begin to talk to us about making the most of our mist, right? I mean, basically, he says, you guys are just like, you take a hot shower, and the mirror steams up, and it's there for a couple minutes, and then poof, it's gone. And he's like, that is your life. And so how do you make the most of your mist? And he says, the way you make the most of your mist is by making the most of the money that God has given you. You go, okay. So he starts off in James chapter 5, verse 1. And he says, come now, you rich people. Now, I don't, I don't know if, if, if I got up and I just said, look here, you rich people. Like, you, you, like whoa, like that sounds really harsh. And that's kind of how James sounds. He sounds a little bit harsh. And, and in fact, most commentators that I read, they, they say, oh, yeah, he must be talking to unbelieving people because he's really harsh with his tone. John MacArthur, um, he, John MacArthur, I think the world of him, I have all of his commentaries. I think he's smarter than me and definitely more spiritual than me. But he makes this comment on this. He goes, oh, this must be people who are in the church and they're faking Christianity. I go, well, I don't know. Right. Because because at the end of the day, like who's going to hang around with a bunch of people that are being persecuted and take a chance of being persecuted for something they don't even believe? I think based on how James is written and even how this chapter is written. Sorry about that. I'm, I am microphone impaired. Um, uh, James chapter one, he starts off and he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Greetings. And then he says, my brothers. Right. So who's he writing to? He's writing to people who are scattered, the, the dispersed tribes who have actually come to faith. And so and later on in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 7, he goes on and he, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. And so in the context, you go, this is James. And again, I just want to make sure that I'm talking really well. Um, uh, this is James writing to people who are in the faith. And he says, you rich people. And, and he takes this tone, and the tone actually gives us a clue that these are actually Christian people, too. Back around the holidays, I don't know if any of you saw people that you hadn't seen in a while, right? And, and some of those people, they're not family. You only see them, you know, every once a year or something like that. And they can say the craziest stuff, and you just kind of smile and nod. Like, I don't want to – as soon as he stops running his mouth, I'll walk away, and I won't say anything, and I'll be polite. But your own family, you take a different tone, right? You, the people that you love and you respect and you want to be with, those are the people that you're incredibly blunt with. Well, James is about to be incredibly blunt, so much so that if he was a pastor in some big church that had a worship team that met together, as, as they would say, hey, Sunday, you're a little too blunt. Like, you got to be a little more seeker sensitive. You got to be a little more, you know, kind and compassionate in your words. And, and, and so his tone is an indicator that he's actually talking to, to family members, to believers. And he starts off in this blunt fashion and says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And you go, wow, that's, uh, you know, that's quite, quite the beginning. 
you know, well, all right, so he's addressing this clearly to rich people. So since he's addressing it to rich people, we have to say, well, who are those people? Are we those people? Because if we aren't those people, we shouldn't, we should just skip over this and move on to the next point, right? So the average combined household income in the United States is $89,000. If you make $100,000 or more combined, then you're in the top 20% of all of America. Now, since Ventura County, um, they say you can't pay your bills on less than 91000 probably a lot of us are close to there in terms of the combined household income. If you make 150000 or more, you're in the top 8% of the United States, and that means you're you know, generally thought of as someone who has more money than they know what to do with. Um, uh, if you have a combined income of $200,000, then you make more than 97% of the rest of the United States. Well, what about the rest of the world? If you have $4,000 in savings, it means that you're richer than 50% of the world. And while it takes $380,000 to be in the top 1% in the U.S., it only takes $32,000 a year in annual income to be in the top 1% of the entire world. The richest 25% of people make basically 75% of the world's income. For example, in Nepal, the average annual income is $1,034. That's a whole lot, right? If you own a home, if you own a car, you're in the top 5% richest people in the entire world. Most of us are rich by American standards. We're definitely rich by international standards. And we would be amazed as we look at James when James says, who is rich, right? And so he begins and he talks about how it is that we are hoarding what we don't need. And it's because we are distracted by a mission that is not God's mission. We have made it our mission to be comfortable. We've made it our mission to store up for the future, and that is not God's mission. And he says you're hoarding for the future because you're not on God's mission. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We go, that's not what I'm talking about. Surely rich people don't weep and howl about things that are coming. It's they have secured their future, and they, they would have no worries. But this wealth has become a source of, of security now, and it will become a source of shame. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evident against you. That, what's he saying? He's like, hey, you have more stuff than you can use. You have so much stuff, so many clothes, for instance, that you can't wear them all before the bugs get into them. And you go, oh, I don't have that problem, because I have a cedar-lined closet, and I have an exterminator, and I, this doesn't happen to me, right? Right? Clothes in the, in the ancient Near East were a sign of wealth. They were, there was only, like, you, you had wealth, and it was shown by uh, precious metals and, and jewels, um, clothing, and food. Th those are the ways that you showed your wealth. And, and people would hold on to their clothing their entire life, and they would stitch it together with other pieces because clothing was something that was expensive, and it was an, a, a sign of wealth. And he says, look, you have so many clothes to wear, you can't even wear them before all the bugs get into them. And, and he says, you have so much money, you can't even circulate it before the bills start to turn colors, before the, the money starts to corrode. Um, and, and so as, as he's saying this, he says, um, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eating, your gold and silver have corroded, which we, we would use the word rusted, right? It's like iron oxide, it, it, it rusts. And their corrosion, very different word. It's like the word for snake venom. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. This, this stuff that you're collecting is actually poisoning you. And he says, you, you have all this stuff that you're saving up. It's your just-in-case 
you know, just in case I get sick, just in case the stock market crashes, just in, sta- in case my job gets eliminated. We, we're tucking things away and we're trusting in our material things. And he says, your coercion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. And, and it says, um, you have hoarded, you have laid, it up, laid up treasure in the last days. Like, this is the last days. We should be about God's mission. And instead, we have made it our mission to accumulate as much as we possibly can. And he says, no. Like, the whole point is that you're to stop hoarding and be on God's mission. And God's mission is to think about the last days and what it is that he wants to accomplish and who it is he wants to reach. And so he says, you, you are, are doing things wrong and that you're hoarding what you don't need rather than being on God's mission. And then he says, you're neglecting those who are in need and you're not living in community. He goes on in, in um, uh, verse four, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He, 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 call, he says, look, you are, are um, these people who are doing good things for you, that, that are living like your friends, that are helping you out. You're using them and you're abusing them. And their cries have reached the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And you get this sense of like, oh, there's impending judgment coming. It's the last days and their voices have reached the Lord of armies. And he says, not only have you, you hoarded your wealth, you're not even willing to give an honest day's labor to the people who are helping you. And God is paying attention. And, and the cries of these mistreated people have reached his ears. And so he's saying to all these rich people, hey, you have made yourself very concerned about your future, but you haven't thought far enough out. You, you have planned for a future through this life, but you have not thought about the next life. And so he says, um, uh, your, these cries have reached the, the, the Lord of hosts, and you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I mean, think about a word picture, right? You fatten up a calf, and you do that so that uh, you have meat to eat. And, and the rich people would throw parties, and they would, they, like, instead of, killing an animal and the whole entire community eating it, um, they, they would throw parties and, and it was like, look how much we can consume. We can have this whole fatted calf just to ourselves at this party. But he says, instead of fattening your calf and slaughtering it, you are fattening yourselves and you're slaughtering other people. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous. Who, who are the righteous, right? When you look at scripture, uh, the righteous aren't people who do good, right? The, the, the people who do, were doing good were the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. But when you look at what Scripture says, they are not the ones that God calls the righteous. Righteousness is always an imputed thing, right? Abraham believed, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And so the righteous are other believers, the people who have placed their faith in Jesus. And because they placed their faith in Jesus, God has made them righteous. And he says, these are the people that you're murdering, you're slaughtering. Now, it's, it's hyperbole, right? He's using a figure of speech, but he's, he's basically saying, um, look, you know how the rich people operate. Rich people have so much that they kind of look around and they, they see people who don't have, and they go, hey, how can I capitalize on this, right? So they, they make a loan to somebody who can't pay their bills. And then that person is trying to pay it back, and then they can't pay it back. 
And when they can't pay it back, that rich person had the ability to walk into their home and take whatever they want. And they could take their kids' slaves, and they could take their belongings. They could just literally walk out with their life. And, and that's what he's saying. He's, he says, um, you, you have murdered. The, you've, you've taken the very life away from people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters because they are the righteous, right? And so he makes this statement. And, and in some ways, we have the same kind of predatory things happening here in the U.S., right? I mean, they're called credit cards, and they're called the state lottery, and they're called casinos, and they, they are attacks on the, on the hopeless and the helpless and the people who, who are, are stuck. And I had a, a close friend, um, she has uh, passed away since then, but um, uh, years ago, this, this woman worked for me, and every day she would buy a lottery ticket. And every day she was like, this, this might be it. And finally, like, she was doing a good job at work, but she was never able to get ahead. And I sat her down one day and I said, I will give you a raise. And I will promote you because you're doing a great job. But I have one condition. And she said, what's that? I was like, you will never buy another lottery ticket as long as you work for me. And she's like, what? Why? I said, because it's a tax on you because you're hopeless and helpless. And now you're getting promoted and you're not hopeless and helpless anymore. And three years later, she calls up one day, Connie and her drive, driving in the car, and she's like, hey, Tim, it's Kathleen. And I was like, hey, how are you? Like, how are things going? She said, I just want you to know, my husband and I are sitting down to sign on our house because we took what you said, and, and we never bought another lottery ticket, and we used our money, like, the way it should be used, and we saved, and we're buying a house. And it's just like, praise the Lord. Like, that's, that's the way, but, but these people are predatory. They are murdering the righteous and he says and he doesn't resist you it, it's literally he's not your enemy it's it's a, a kind of a um a backhanded way of saying this is your friend it's we had a, a friend in florida and our friend um uh i remember hearing a, a friend of ours say uh hey dave um what do you think of that girl do you think she's pretty should i date her and he goes oh yeah she's pretty and i remember dave's wife like wait what and and She's like, ah, uh, and from that moment on, there was never a time that Dave referred to any woman as pretty. He would say, well, she's not ugly, right? And this is what James is saying. Like, this is not your enemy, right? It's, it's a, it's understatement. He's like, this is, this is your friends. This is your family. These are the, the, the people and it, it, that, that should be part of your closest community. And so he says, look, you're hoarding what you don't need when you should be on mission. And you are neglecting those who are in need when you should be in community. If, if we, we wanted to, you know, illustrate this, and I really honestly shouldn't have to illustrate it, but we, we could illustrate it this way. Um, let's just say you are going to the park, and you're taking your son Billy and his friend Zach. And you have packed a lunch for your son Billy, and, and you have packed a sandwich, and you've packed an orange, and you've packed a drink pop, and four chocolate chip cookies. And Johnny's mom packed a lunch. She packed a sandwich and a drink pop and an orange, and oh, Johnny's mom forgot the cookies, right? What is it you think are, is going to happen at that point? Are, are you going to say to Johnny, like, oh, Johnny, too bad, so sad. Like, you should um, go over there. I see these bushes on our way into the park, and they have some berries on them. Why don't you go pick some berries, and then you'll have a snack, right? You're not going to do that. Why? Because you're a decent human being, and decent human beings don't do that. Decent human beings, in the next 30 seconds after it's discovered that Johnny doesn't have any cookies, what's 
single word you're going to say to your child. Share, right? It's intuitive. And, and you might say to your son, hey, why don't you share? You have more than you need. And if your son says, but they're mine, you say, but you have four. You don't need four. You could give him two, right? Now, if your son it just of his own volition said, I tell you what, Johnny, I've got four. I'll give you two of mine. Like at that moment, are you going to go, oh, my word, the whole free market system is going to come apart. My son doesn't understand ownership. Right. I mean, is that is that how it's going to go? No, you're, you're going to take him aside. and You're going to say that was fantastic. I'm so glad you did that. I'm so glad that you felt internally what it is you're supposed to do. And he just did it. And I'm so glad that you're that person. Right. That's that's the way that things should be. And it should be intuitive for us. But our Father in heaven looks down, and he, and he must see our Cedar Line projects and our savings accounts and, and, and all of our just-in-case funds. And he must think, like, why do they think I gave those things? Do, do they think I gave those things so that they could just stop working earlier? Do they think I gave those things so that they could buy their kids a bunch of electronics that are just going to rot their brain anyway? Do they think that, that they can put their confidence in these things? Like, the, the, the things that God gives us, he gives us. So that we can use for his glory and for his honor. And sometimes he gives us more than we need. And it's so that we can help those that are in need, right? This passage can be incredibly frustrating because at the end, James doesn't say, here's three things, three, three ways that this focused, right? Um, and, and, and particularly if you're struggling, right? You read these words and you go, oh, I should be giving. But you go, well, I'm struggling to even pay my own bills. So, so. I don't want anybody to feel beat up. And I, th one of the wonderful things about being here at Mercy Chapel is I have no idea if anybody gives, who they give, who gives, who gives what. Like, it's beautiful because I can talk about stuff like this, and it's not like a call to put stuff in the box, right? Um, we have a box, and we could cast a plate. In fact, I've had other pastors tell me, you should cast a plate. Your offerings will go up 30%. I was like, yeah, because of guilt and shame, and that's not what it's about, right? Jesus said when you give, give in secret. And so that's why we do it that way. But but in this instance, it's easy to look at this and go, man, I like how do I not feel beat up by this? Well, if we look at the rest of scripture, 1 Corinthians has has a, a great thing that helps us kind of think this through. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 10 says this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so now um, you are to do also. On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And basically, he says, look, you get together, you're worshiping, set aside something that God has called you to do. Like, it's between you and God, and it's based on what he's given you. So think about it as proportional giving. The, the Old Testament gives this kind of training wheels, if you will. It, it says to the, the people of Israel, they're to give 10%. And, and then every three years, you're supposed to give 10% to the widows and the orphans. And every three years, you're supposed to give 10% to be able to throw parties and festivals. Um, and so really, he says, you know, tithing is about 16%. Um, I remember we the, the year that we jumped from 10 to 16, we were like, this is painful. And yet it was also this beautiful thing because we were thinking, like, who are the widows and orphans that we're going to focus this 3% on? And, and what, are, what are we going to do to build community with this other 3%? And, and so proportionate giving is something that's biblical, and it reminds us that, hey, this is about God's mission. And it also helps us understand that when things get tight, he doesn't expect us to give lavishly. He gives us, he tells us to give proportionately. 
He also says that, that giving is supposed to be a priority. In Proverbs chapter 3, he says um, that we're to give our first fruits, right? We're, we're, we're basically the, the, the first and best of what God gives us is supposed to be the first check that we write. Why? Because if we wait and we don't write that check first, if it's down, down the, the, the path of sin, that's what we going to have to do with that. Um, so anyway, um, uh, if we wait, what are we going to do? Like we, we say, all right, I've committed to give to my church, and maybe I'm supporting John and Candace in Costa Rica. Um, like, well, guess what? The bill's going to be a little higher this year, you know, this month, because the, the heat's been running, and we had that leak in the toilet, so the water bill's going to be there. And all of a sudden, we start paying everything out, and we look at what's left and say, man, I don't know about that. And what are we doing? Him and John and Candace, we're going to bury him. We're like, hey, you're here you go. You, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. He says, no, make this a priority. Give of your first. My, my grandfather was an accountant, um, and his goal was to do what, like, Rick Warren has done, which is to uh, give away 90% and to live on 10%. Uh, my grandfather lived till 98, 99, um, and he got up to about 50% of his income that he gave away, um, but he's always sad that he never made it 10%. Uh, but he always said, give of your first and best, save for the future, live on the rest. Right, like give God your very best. Give it, give that first, and then of course the scripture talks about saving, and and it's not that we don't save at all; it's that we don't hoard it. Right, so saving according to scriptural standards is a good thing, but good things become bad things when they become overabundant. Right, Um, and then then the final thing we give a percentage of proportionate giving. We give as a priority. Um, We want to progressively increase our giving. First uh, Timothy talks about um, is those of you who are rich, be rich in good deeds, right? And he says, in doing this, you will um, lay up for yourself a treasure that, and, and you will have life that is truly life. That is, we are, are constantly looking and evaluating and saying, how can we give more? How can we deploy the resources of God we've given us to be able to take care of people and to, to care for their needs? And, and so as we do this, we begin, like, for our family, when we were living in West Hollywood, um, we would have uh, folks that would come into our church, and they'd be part of our body. And then inevitably, a lot of them would find a new apartment that they were in in different locations, and they actually were getting, and they would hit a month where they couldn't pay the rent or whatever. And so we were constantly praying for folks. And for many years, folks who had blind one guy, um, who I'm sure, Lord, you're kind to us, but he, um, he was behind a month. He was in hospital month one, and he was going to get evicted. And so we got together, and we fasted, and we prayed, and we all tried to look at our resources. None of us had enough money to pay two months of rent and even combined. And so we were praying and fasting and praying. So when a check came out of the blue, we didn't expect it, and we didn't and knew we had the resources, and it was for only for that dollar that he needed, we became a conduit. And we were like, all right, here you go. This, this is what God gave us, and we're going to give it to you. And it was funny, the more we became a conduit for, for resources to come through us, it seemed like the more God gave us. And we just kept getting more and giving away, getting more and giving away. And we looked at the end of the year and we thought, we didn't make very much money, but the percentage of what we gave away was really high. Why? Because we just didn't hold on to it. We didn't look at it as a dollar. We looked at it as, man, we are a conduit and we're going to pass it along. And so when, when we are doing the James thing, then, then we aren't going to hoard the things that we don't need, we're going to think about mission. And when our mission, if, and, and your mission is God's mission, your mission isn't your own um, lining your own pockets. And, and when you are committed to a community, you're committed to a church. You're committed to a 
had so many troubles with this in my life, right? This, this is what spiritual warfare looks like, right? It's just, it's death. Um, uh, it is uh, uh, life nuisances or that are distracting because the me- this is the message of Christian life. Um, when, when we are living in community, then, then we aren't going to neglect people who are in need because we're going to be with people that we love and we're in relationship with. If, if that is our focus, we're going to start to look more like Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that, that the, the people would come together, Christian people early on, and, and they would sell their belongings to be able to share with each other, to be able to care for each other, that they would go house to house and they'd eat with each other, that they were living constantly in relationship with each other and thinking about each other. And because of that, the outside world looked at their lives and said, wow, their lives together are amazing, and says that they were adding to their number every single day, those people who are being saved, because who doesn't want to be part of something like that, right? When people are caring for each other and they're willing to sell their stuff to be able to help other people, then that is the kind of people you want to be with, right? And generosity has our, a, a direct impact on our ability to be missional and to live in community well. So my, my prayer is couple One, that, that we do a great job of putting this out there. But beyond that, that we, we think and, and we plan forward and we dream about being able to do more than just this one thing. That we begin to think and pray about, how do we begin to take the gospel beyond Montessori? Like, uh, I think a, a great goal for our church should be, how do we tithe to plant churches, right? Like, maybe that's a thing that we do in coming years. We, we start strategizing, how do we lay aside a, percent, a percentage to be able to launch churches out, to be able to train church leaders? Um, there's a, a couple of really great Prince County residents who I love. We just helped fund. Recently, um, uh, a couple of weeks back, they said, uh, they're also missionaries in South Africa, and they said, um, hey, we uh, are, are, we know that you're a small church. You already have a, a missionary couple that's supporting. You don't have the resources to be able to support us all the way, but we have this project. And the project is we've been asked to fly into Guatemala four times and to, to train church leaders. And church leaders from all over Guatemala are going to come in, and they are going to uh, come to a conference that we're going to run. And, and people in local churches are going to house them and feed them since there's no cost. You just have to pay to get there four times. And so um, and so Cody and I prayed about it, and we were like, all right, we, we don't know how God's going to provide the $4,000 over four years, but we're going to commit to do this because this is – God building the kingdom forward. And our heart is for that to be a thing that we embody. That we're generous people to each other, but we're generous to people outside of the church. That we're growing God's kingdom and it's about his kingdom and not about the things that we want. We want to be that. And so that's why we pray for it. And we also really pray for our church to labor and dream well. And so we need to be praying and we need to be on his plan and we need to be thinking these things through. And, and, and if we are, we aren't going to hoard the things we don't need because we're going to be on mission. And we aren't going to neglect the people who are in need because we're in community. And so we want that to be the, the expectation and the hope and the prayer for our church. And so will you pray with me? Pray that we would become that church, that we would become a generous gospel. When we say we are a gospel people in gospel community and gospel mission, come on, people, let's do this, right? That is the key. That is kind of what we're seeking to do. Father, we thank you for the hard words of Scripture. We thank you that sometimes uh, the difficult, the things that, that are hard for us sometimes, that we, that we look at our resources and we think, 
is it that God wants me to share with other people? Lord, as we think about it as a church, it's, it's easy to sit back as a church and say, well, we're not going to support missionaries and we're not going to focus on church planting because we don't have enough money to have a full-time pastor. Or we, like, those things aren't important. At the end of the day, what's important is that, that your kingdom is first and foremost in our minds, that your people are first and foremost in the way that we care, in the way that we love. Lord, we pray that we would be a generous people not because we are compelled, not because we are shamed into it, but because we have been given so much. We have been given the gospel. We have been given the life of Christ. We have been given your riches in glory. We have been given the hope of heaven. And so, Lord, we can't help in our selfishness to turn around and say, we want to give back to you what you have given to us because we want to worship you with it. Lord, let us be a generous people who are gospel-centered, who are mission-oriented, who are loving people. Lord, if we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love those who are around us, then we are completing what it is that you have given us, all in your honor and glory. So Lord, let us bless this time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you-